0: Welcome to AI, Government, and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government, and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high-impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety, and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence.
1: Today on the podcast, we are joined by Dr. Fred Oswald, a distinguished expert in the fields of psychology, artificial intelligence, and workforce development. So this is a big one. This is a hot button issue in the AI space. As Autry Chair of Social Sciences and a professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Rice University, Fred has led the Organization and Workforce Laboratory, OWL for sure in groundbreaking research that explores the future of the workforce, employee performance, and academic success. He's also a member of that big National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee. So we've had some other members of that on the pod before, but it's published across multiple high-end journals. So, Fred, welcome to the podcast, and uh, it's great to have you
2: here. Hey, Alan, thanks so much for having me, and that is a real mouthful of an introduction, and I look forward to talking about AI in the workplace with you.
1: If you do really well and you get all these accolades, you gotta list them out, so. What was it all for if not, right? Excellent, so obviously, as I said in your intro, the topic of AI, bias, the workplace, these are hot button things. It's probably one of the things that I hear. One, I guess the fears around employment are, AI is gonna take my job, and then, you know, these fears that somehow AI is gonna be used to profile or otherwise discriminate. And it might have bias within it. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there as concerns and opportunities with AI, the workforce.
2: Sure. So let me start by talking about what I focus on in my research, which is on employment testing and the selection context, where, as you noted, some of those issues are coming up. They're coming up everywhere, but issues around bias, issues around fairness are certainly central concerns in the selection context, but I also work with colleagues more broadly on issues around the workforce, workforce development, education to career pathways, and how do those look in general is a research concern. It's something we look into as researchers, but obviously it affects people to look at these pathways descriptively, to see what they look like, but then for their implications for how should people be investing in their education? How should they be reskilling as they go through formal education? They're in the workforce and AI is coming in and disrupting things one way or another. How should they potentially reskill? So we don't claim to have uh, perfect answers to those questions. That's why we keep doing the research. But we do offer some ideas around how those pathways might be more effective or or less effective. So that's a broader research idea. You know, when it comes to selection, we think about what does bias look like and how are these technologies contributing to it?
1: Definitely. So I'm kind of curious on the part about reskilling, but also sort of not not just reskilling, but AI as an aid to people improving their performance or their productivity. We've seen some early Takes. I don't know if you've seen this Ethan Mollick study that he did with Boston Consulting Group. And seeing that, a couple of things he pointed out, as I remember from the article, was it was really helpful in bringing consultants who were lower performing consultants up to kind of close to parity with high performing. And they measured it across a series of time, number of ideas, things like that. But it didn't seem to have a huge impact on the highest performing consultants and actually should some degradation for them. What are you guys seeing right now with these more advanced generative models? Is that sort of what you're seeing or is there a lot of different outcomes?
2: What I've seen is how generative AI is being used in a variety of contexts, whether it's students at Rice University. I don't know the extent to which they're using it, actually.
1: Oh, they're using it.
2: Well, I suspect they are uh, in, for various types of work and at universities more generally and in high schools more generally and so on. So it's a tool that is at some level inevitably going to be used. And then referring to the Moloch study, how will that translate then into a performance increase or perhaps decrease? As you know, maybe expert performance degrades uh, to the extent GPT is relied upon too much because the very expertise that makes them unique and contributing is not found in the model necessarily or interferes with the expertise.
1: It's sort of like a distraction from what they do well, right?
2: A distraction. Yeah. How do you use it? Yeah, exactly. So I'm seeing it being used by students, by uh, employees, by HR professionals. And then the question is, when people are saying, well, will AI have an influence on the workforce? It already is. It's time to start collecting data now and looking at it seriously. And the Moloch study is a start. And there are some reports out there beginning to show some of the effects that are taking place and the next GPT-8, when that comes out, maybe the experts will even benefit from that iteration. So who knows on that front?
1: So I guess we sort of had some anecdotal stuff, but we don't really know at this point what the impacts are with any kind of precision.
2: Right, but I think given that education is a real investment of time and money and people invest in their careers and naturally they want their pathways to pay off. So really there's some great importance in forecasting both for the individuals and in the aggregate when you think about how should we be investing in education and, and the workforce. And I think AI, just like the personal computer, you know, can displace jobs, can change jobs, and um, it can create new jobs. So all of these things will be happening simultaneously. I guess it doesn't take me to say that. Uh, it's just happening. But I think people like me can take more of a systematic approach to understanding those changes and it's a matter of types of changes that are happening but also the amount it's not just type it's a supply and demand issue you're reskilling and you feel like you fit the future of work but those new jobs have to be available for you once you've reskilled and that's sort of the challenge we've faced in any educational investment well prior to AI, right? I've got my degree in X, engineering. Hopefully there's a job available for me. So maybe these new discussions or they've been around for a while, but at this point around micro-credentialing and gaining skills in a more flexible way will make increasingly more sense as technology continues to evolve and people can reskill in an adaptive way more easily.
1: Obviously, like if you're an ML engineer or something, there is plenty of demand. Like you get that degree, you know, you're getting a job, right? But what I've noticed in my own company is it's very difficult to get the technology. So say like prompt engineering, sort of like maybe one of these micro skills that you might teach somebody. It's not advanced computer science. It's very difficult to kind of get a use case get it implemented and then not have it change, you know, and then like all of a sudden 18 other tools come out and like what we were trying to do has been OBE'd by some other thing. And it's like, it's really bewildering unless you're self-motivated. It's really hard to put together a training program for a company that can actually get people doing stuff on the edge. Because I mean, I do it because I'm really interested. So I'm like, oh, I heard about perplexity AI. So now I'm going to go do it. But like, It's really difficult to institutionalize that in a company where you're asking people to kind of stay up with something that changes every month or every week for a while.
2: Exactly. I think you're pointing to an important phenomenon, which is that if you use the analogy of painting a fast moving train, well, some parts of the train are moving fast. People that are really on the forefront, trying out new things, that they have maybe the luxury of time and also the benefit of talent to come together and, and look into these these issues and contribute to the innovations, not only learn, but contribute further themselves because they're the leading. In terms of their use and maybe they have technical knowledge like you have as well but there are other parts of the train that are perhaps have more people as well involved where the long tail of people and a wide range of organizations that may be using ai tools in a variety of contexts and how does that look when people are just trying to get their jobs done on a day-to-day basis and these are at least to this point, not being replaced by AI? And is AI a need or not a need? And how do they know it's a need? And when will it be a need if AI changes in ways that will meet the demands for those jobs? And how will they know? And I think you're getting at sort of where the rubber meets the road of how AI technologies get implemented. It's one thing to think it's an exciting thing and here's the potential application, but how do you cross that bridge into you have a box of AI on your welcome mat and you're opening it up and looking at it and now using it. And companies want, companies invested in AI technologies who are developing the technologies, they want that to happen, right? They want to sell their, their products and make them useful in the world. So it is a joint effort to do that, but it requires some low in the trenches understanding of how companies work and a resistance to change can be Present at the same time, there can be a desire to want to change. And how do you navigate?
1: I was talking to a friend of mine who's a partner at a law firm here in DC, does a lot of litigation. And they are telling them all the time do not use AI in anything you're doing. Because there was this case with the guy who got a bunch of hallucinated cases that he brought into a courtroom and got killed by this judge. So, yeah, so I get it. You're not supposed to do that. But on the other hand, there's just a study that came out that. ChatGPT4 outperformed most junior lawyers on a series of basic like case law review studies and did it outperformed in the sense of like, did it in a minute and at zero cost and they take three hours and cost, you know, whatever an hour is 500 bucks an hour. So it is this tension in organizations where it's coming, but some of them are telling people not to use
2: it. Exactly. And you're nicely illustrating this cost-benefit analysis of the use of AI, the legal context or simple financial pluses and minuses of its use. And I think in evaluating those dimensions, there is the correctness of AI, which can be a continuum. Sometimes it's yes, no. Other times it's good enough.
1: By the way, the correctness of lawyers is a continuum as well. Just to be clear, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I'm sure lawyers tell each other that too in court. The other side may not be as correct as them. So that's definitely a topic of debate is not only the correctness of what AI is doing, which can be on a continuum, but also the correctness of what humans consider to be acceptable. I think is an important component. So in other words, you can have AI technologies that will take standardized tests and do well, right? They'll take the LSAT or MCAT or SAT and do well, and there's a gold standard for what is correct. But I think there's another human element to this of what we as humans think is correct and find acceptable. And this gets us into topics I'm not an expert in around misinformation and belief in misinformation, but there is some relevance here. What is believed to be good enough and is it good enough is an empirical question that involves human decision-making. And
1: and gets into epistemology.
2: Yeah, I guess epistemology, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting thinking about it from the standpoint of what I've been thinking through with this is there's a lot of use cases for this technology at sort of a basic level of, hey, I got to build an outline. I've got to organize my thoughts. I got to do this. So it's very good at that, but it's maybe not the best thing to write. It writes like a pretty smart eighth grader. And I guess what I was thinking through it, it's what I think is probably going to happen on this knowledge piece and, you know, how right it is. I guess as the models become more specific, so you're going to have like a legal case model, not a Chat GPT, you're going to have a legal that's only been trained on case law. In my estimation, that would probably be highly accurate. So part of it is one narrowing. To get it past that sort of basic stuff, it feels like the models need to narrow to very specific use cases, and the, the user experience has to change. Because even people tell you, oh, you can code with Chat GPT. Well, yeah, I mean, I could ask it to write code, but I actually can't get that code to run on anything. I don't know how to do that, right? So it doesn't actually do that. There's a bunch of friction between that and having it actually run the program on the web or whatever I'm trying to do. And so it seems like that's where we need to go is much more specificity in the model and then improving that user experience.
2: There's a convergence of several different areas there. One is the specialized knowledge that comes into play. And are the AI models up to date and using that knowledge in a way that makes sense given your use case, given your purpose, and that's reflected in your prompts and so on. There's the user training in terms of their interaction with AI and understanding how to use it. So even if you specialize the AI, you've got the specialized tool. Do you know how to use it? And part of that issue too comes down to Again, humans, we're on a, it's unavoidable where let's say you have case law being used as your example and different laws come into play that do lead to even experts coming up with differences of opinion about how the law is applied. You know, will AI resolve those issues? I, I don't think that will be the case. There's a stopping point where AI is giving you the facts and is giving you maybe some pros and cons, but then it, it may be up to you as an expert and having knowledge of contextual issues outside of the model, including your desire to win a case, <laughs> not to be dismissed, right, is um, part of that use of a- use of AI.
1: I think this adoption piece is really important. I mean, I've been banging on this for a year. I've spent resources on training, and I probably have hundred and something people in our company, and I probably have five to ten who are using it on a regular basis, so... Just, you know, that's going to change over the next year. We're putting in new stuff. We learn, we're starting to build assistance for every project and every function and that will improve it, but it took a while and it's a lot of investment. And to be honest, we wasted a lot of investment because we, we were like trying to build GPTs before they were GPTs and then all of a sudden they were GPTs and we didn't need to build those anymore. So you had to like kind of throw that out.
2: I do hear a theme that arises from folks that mirrors yours about how GPT can provide useful structure around ideas people have, whether it's programming code or writing a paper on a topic that relates to your expertise, where the outline is there, the content is there in a skeletal sense, and um, it really requires your expertise to push that into something that is yours, ultimately yours. I guess there are cases where as GPT advances, so you mentioned the smart eighth grader, and that's not good enough necessarily for your standard. But let's say it's it's starting to creep up to your level of acceptability. Again, this turns into these broader issues of, do you really want to adopt this as your work? And how much of your own expertise really should factor in, You feel like it should if you're using your feelings, and uh, maybe rationally it should if you see a logical gap. How much is AI going to close even those gaps? People joke about AI being the employee and the customer at the same time, and they can talk to each other all day while we relax. I don't know if we'll push it that far, but on my end, I do a little bit of programming to relate to your own example, where I've found that GPT will generate code that is useful and to some extent in pieces usable, but it's not fully usable. And it even generates ideas for programming I hadn't thought about. So it kind of teaches you some new tricks.
1: That's what I think is most helpful. Let's move from that to how it can support the workforce to the issues about selection and bias. So give us a little, just kind of a little overview of what you look in that world regardless of AI, and then let's talk a little bit about how AI might apply to that.
2: A classic case of employment discrimination is where the proportions of those who are being hired who belong to groups that are uh, members of protected classes, like race, ethnicity, and gender, the proportions being hired are different from the proportions you see in the applicant pool. So if you hired 30 percent, of the women who applied and 50% of the men who applied, that would be a discrepancy that would violate the four-fifths rule, which says that those rates should be within 80% of each other. And so that would trigger an investigation potentially, a prima facie case for employment discrimination. So it doesn't mean the employer did discriminate, it just means that based on this evidence, you might wanna look into it. And so this is kind of the, the standard model for Title VII violations and where the EEOC would get involved and raise the issue. And then in the case where these statistical conclusions, you then follow up and say, well, were the measures used business relevant? Do they measure job relevant skills? Do they predict outcomes of interest? Basically seeing, is there any evidence for a material biasing factors within your selection system? It's part of the bigger picture of investigating what the cause is so naturally employers don't want to use measures that would result in these outcomes that would trigger investigations what measures seem to be useful and usable well you know we want to measure skills relevant to the job so whatever job is being hired for it sure helps to have a um a job analysis and that that's an umbrella term for a variety of things you can do to see what the job-relevant skills, we call them KSAOs, knowledge, skills, ability, and other factors. What are those characteristics of workers that are needed for the job, but not just needed for the job, needed at the point of selection versus training or what skills you're going to pick up on the job. And not only skills that are relevant for selection, but then given those skills, you can't test everything. So what are, what are the subset skills you want to choose? So given that you can see how this is a complicated problem because how do you know it's needed for a selection and maybe I can train for it, or maybe I do want to select for it to avoid training costs. Uh, but what if it has adverse impact implications? That's part of the mix here. So with AI coming into the play here, the same concerns are being raised. But they've gotten a lot more attention these days, for sure, because they are AI-related, because decisions can be made on such a large scale so quickly, using algorithms that are relatively opaque, using data that might be less transparent than taking, you know, we all have taken uh, personality tests or knowledge tests where what is being measured seems more apparent. Perhaps data that are less apparent, like if you took a gamified assessment, or if some aspects of a video interview were scored around your vocal tone, which is not job relevant, arguably, in most cases, it's less apparent there what is being measured that's job relevant or what's being, how the algorithm is scoring if it's a machine learning model. Not all machine learning models are opaque, but some of them certainly are. It's interesting to me because I've sort of had this
1: theory for a long time that what if AI tells us all the right answers, but we don't want to know what the answers are? We don't like the answers, so we, we just ignore them. It kind of feels like we probably will do that quite a bit. So it strikes me like it's kind of inevitable that if you have an AI that's generated and learns from data you give it, it's pretty difficult to unpack exactly what it learned and how. Isn't that true? So like as it goes, It'll start selecting people, and it's going to be almost impossible to say why it selected one person over another beyond some certain basic stuff.
2: That is a definite concern, and this is where I begin sounding like an old man, because my pushback to that concern is to say, why don't we look at traditional measure development and why we have gone in that direction in the past? Why do we give items that reflect some personality dimension, like conscientiousness? Why do we do that? We do that because we have looked at the job. We see that conscientiousness is relevant. We've looked at data to show there's a correlation between conscientiousness and performance. And based on that information, we've decided that we will Go straight to the signal of conscientiousness and ask items related to it, try and see if we can figure out differences between job applicants. You've taken these tests, they're self report They're not perfect. You can lie on them. They're not without their own problems. But the point is to say that at the very least, the measures are more intentional than doing some Video interview scoring the video itself or some data scraping type, you know, maybe you scrape social media to get information on applicants. I'm not sure how widespread that is, but the idea is that that is more like incidental data. You're you're lucky if you get data that are job relevant sometimes. If you're scraping far and wide on data, like you said, you could put that in an algorithm and perhaps get some employment decisions out of it but you don't know what is relevant to the job and what is a contaminant. Traditional methods, I'm not saying we should retreat to that. I wanna encourage AI innovations to be sure, but we can learn lessons from traditional employment testing and the methods applied to them to see how we can bridge into AI tools that are fairer, that are more reliable, that predict outcomes better. So one motivation
1: I could see is employers saying, I built the AI, it went out and figured out who was good, and then it helps me hire better people. So I like that because I get better people, and I'm not subject to anybody's ability to trace why. Do you see a motivation for employers to not use those objective criteria because they can be attacked or sued or pressured based on Mm -hmm. those? It's like, hey, if you selected for conscientiousness, That has a disparate impact or has this or that effect, right? So how much pressure is being put on them and how, I guess the question would be how defensible are those traditional measures under current application versus like, hey, if I don't have anything, then there's, you can't attack me on it basically, you know?
2: I'm not sure how much of a defense that is, right? There are some approaches that way, right? To say that we have a complex uh, selection process, it's multi-stage, we look at applicants in a holistic manner and we can't pinpoint exactly what we're looking at. I think that's subject to scrutiny as much as or more than, particularly if the outcomes have bias, right? Well, what did you do in your human interviews and, um, you know, when you read people's uh, resumes, how did you reach these outcomes? So I definitely understand your point. I think there is some desire in some ways to, or at least a worry, where being transparent means revealing some information that needs improvement. And I think that these Title Seven adverse impact cases put companies in a reactive mode We found these problematic outcomes and now we need to deal with it and figure out how to remedy that. And that's part of the situation, but it would be nice to have more proactive efforts to monitor for adverse impact or to, to monitor to make sure that what you think is happening in a selection process is happening continuously over time, that you are being fair using these measures in the way that you thought they're being measured.
1: So I guess the most traditional methods, so those are, I mean, I guess from your perspective, those have been demonstrated to impact job performance and then it's considered okay to select based on that, even if it has a a different adverse impact or is that not the case?
2: As I mentioned, these measures are are certainly not perfect, but they are well-developed measures do pay attention to making sure they are reflecting the skills, the the knowledge that workers need to perform effectively in organizations. This is the case where you know, we don't want perfect to be the enemy of the good is when tests are well developed, they can serve organizations well above alternatives like random selection or, human intuition or biases right so it's not that the tests are perfect but they do offer some value when they're well developed i'm not defending all traditional tests to be sure they too need to provide evidence for their use and so we can learn lessons from how good tests in the traditional vein have been developed and apply those principles for test development to the machine learning context to say, okay, anything developed by machine learning, I mean, the the world is your oyster. You, there are so many ways you can measure people. What are the ways that are job relevant and how would we know? What kind of data can we bring to the table to assure us that this is really going to be relevant job characteristics that are worth selecting on? That's an ongoing process, right? A, of gathering the data and and maybe refining the measure. If you have a new measure, you need to vet it and then maybe tweak it. But that has to be done pretty carefully. And you might pilot test a measure to make sure you're not making decisions differently for different applicants. You want to pilot test it and not use it for decision-making. Just have applicants take it in pilot mode until you gather enough data to understand the measure and maybe make some modifications before you actually use it for decision-making.
1: So it's interesting. So you said, going back to something like conscientiousness, so that's something that it's legal to select for because it's job applicable.
2: In general, I mean, I think that conscientiousness is a characteristic that is useful on the job. Now there are nuances to that point, but I think overall I'm just using that as an example because it can be pretty applicable across types of jobs. And moreover, it adds above and beyond a job knowledge test, for example. A job knowledge test is not redundant with conscientiousness. They're very different. And so if you want to understand the worker in their breadth, it can be useful to supplement a knowledge test with conscientiousness. And then there can be other measures uh, to add as well. There's only so much time in the day to test people.
1: I guess my point was like so just take not that conscientious is the only measure. just that's a measure that's legal to test for, right? So, as an example, it seems like what is the use of AI or at least way it strikes me it's going to be developed based on what you're saying, it could go out and learn other ways to find out if people are conscientious
2: potentially, yeah,
1: but it's much more dangerous. For the employer to have something that goes and figures out a bunch of criteria that haven't been tested, you can't really understand where they came from, that maybe selects really good employees. If you can't trace that back, you're going to be in trouble. Whereas it's going to have to be the other way where it's like, here are these factors and that we found that apply to job success, and then the AI can help you test for them better or find better ways or decompose the measure into parts that can be measured. But you know, whatever it is, strikes me, it's going to be a little bit more that than the former.
2: Everything you said is true, especially if there are discriminatory outcomes. So, you know, you could select people at random virtually, and if there were no discriminatory outcomes, you may not be questioned for it. That's not great. You know, that's not what the organization is seeking, but it's not illegal necessarily, it's not desirable. You're not selecting on job characteristics necessarily. So the ideal is exactly what you said, is to measure job-relevant characteristics that are fair to applicants, that are reliable and fair. And to the extent you do take an AI or algorithmic approach, that may add to fairness because Unlike somebody doing interviews, algorithms don't get tired and they are subject to scrutiny. Even if the algorithm might have some opaqueness to it, at least you know what the algorithm is. And so we can make progress on that as opposed to, you know, when people are making subjective decisions, you have to hope that you can train them to not be tired and make fair decisions and so on. So the same issues apply to both AI and human decision-making that biases can be baked into algorithms, biases can be baked into people, how do we get them out, how do we focus on job-relevant characteristics in ways that will lead to effective workers being hired, which is great for the organization, but also good for employees so they know they're going into jobs where they actually can perform and make a difference. If you select on the basis of your hunch or um, using AI technologies that have not Provided, you know, there's no evidence associated for its effectiveness proceed at your own risk, I would say.
1: If you found out that everybody who ate peanuts was a much better employee, right? The AI might discover something random like that. And of course it could be correlation without causation and all those sorts of things, but it strikes me that it's going to be very difficult. You know, if you're selling stuff in a store and you find some correlation, you can go out and do it because it doesn't really matter whether it's right or wrong. You'll find out over time. So you can go test a bunch of stuff like that and use it. And, and you don't need to know why the peanuts should be by, you know, the water or whatever. But in employment, you're not going to be able to get away with that.
2: Right. I think you're talking about high stakes versus low stakes kinds of situations or where the consequences are not as they're very different. So another example would be like chess, right? We have AI trained to win at chess or you have AI trained at identifying pieces of art, who the artist is. However it does it is however it does it. You're not going to question how it gets reaches those outcomes. But when you're in the hiring setting, when you're in the medical setting, when you're in the educational setting where humans are literally part of the equation, right, they're providing the data and they're They're facing the consequences. That's a different story, as you say. And AI ethics is uh, hugely important in those contexts.
1: So if you were looking out over the next five years, say, where do you see the biggest impacts on, given the pace of development, like on the hiring process coming? Do you have any sense of that now? Like if you're an employer or an employee?
2: Well... When GPT came out, I think the predictions of futurists were uh, deflated. A lot of us were surprised at what GPT could do. So in five years from now, we could have other disruptive AI technologies. This all assumes people are going to listen to my forecast here, but I would say that GPT is going to be more of an embedded technology in people's lives. We're already seeing it in the way people work. And so um, when it comes to hiring, I think the the skills that are being asked for will inevitably require people being able to use these new technologies. And maybe GPT will be so seamless in these technologies, just like we don't think about the transistors in our radio, that to some extent it could be taken for granted. But to another extent, it could be the way talent is defined is by being able to use these advanced technologies. I guess what I'm saying is, It doesn't mean you have to use GPT in the same way that we're using it now with prompts and so on. It could be the way we use GPT when things advance, as you say, like in five years, where GPT is more embedded in these technologies. Are you going to be able to use it better as an employee when you're being considered for a job as an applicant? I think that we'll see more integration from the recruitment side to selection to training. And I think those integrations will be interesting. I mean, it makes for good business practice to sell integrated tools, but it's also the case that the reason why it's appealing is that it provides greater functionality on the part of the employee and the the business to figure out how to go through those stages of employment processes without being clunky where one feeds into the other for better or for worse but being able to understand the relationships within those systems and how humans interact in those systems and not just treat it as a sterile technology problem, but as a socio-technical problem. I think we'll be looking at those in very different ways in the coming years as these technologies mature.
1: One of my hopes or predictions hopes is that the AI can get past credentialism and LinkedIn and find talent So if you really can get down to dissecting what makes up job performance better, like at least incoming in the door makes people have better potential for X, Y, Z job, then you can go find, and, and you're able to go find more data points out there. Maybe it's what people's doing. I mean, I'm sure Google's already hiring people because of what they did on GitHub or something. But think about that at scale, where you could find people all over the world because they demonstrate these characteristics through their use of social networks or other things that we don't even think about right now. And your AI is constantly scraping the world for all that talent and helping you get the talent that's exactly aligned with the job skills that you need in a much more efficient way. It would be my hope.
2: I think the, the theme you're bringing out here is that life is a test and AI may be able to understand that a little better and help us all along the way.
1: Yeah. Since I told my daughter going to college, everything in life is one ladder after the other, right? And you just got to figure out which ones you want to climb and which ones you don't. Well, that's great. Well, Fred, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. It's been great.
2: Thanks for having me. This was really interesting. I know my gears are turning based on our conversation, I hope people listening are thinking as well on these important topics. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon, Fred. Thanks so much.
0: AI, Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com. And then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.